LinkedIn presents. When the causes that people are behind are more important to them than the system, the system is in jeopardy. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, why legendary investor Ray Dalio thinks the country may be headed for civil war. How do you build the largest hedge fund in the world? You start by getting a job as a golf caddy. That's what Ray Dalio did back in 1961 when he was 12 years old. On weekends, he caddied at a club on Long Island called The Lynx. And unlike Ray, whose father was a jazz musician and his mother a homemaker, The Lynx was ritzy. Richard Nixon played there, so did the Duke of Windsor, and Ray caddied for both of them. So when I was caddying, they were talking to me about the stock market, and I'd take my $6 a bag, and when I got $50, I'd put it in the stock market. His first investment? It was the only company that I ever heard of that was selling for less than $5 a share. So I figured I could buy more shares, which meant if it went up, I'd make more money. That was my rationale. That was a stupid (laughs) rationale, right? Um, And it was a company that was about to go broke, But another company acquired it. It tripled in value. And I thought, this game's easy. I can make a lot of money. Game's not easy, but that's what got me hooked. And he stayed hooked. In 1975, when he was 26 years old, Ray founded a hedge fund called Bridgewater and ran it out of his two-bedroom apartment. He had some early success. McDonald's was one of his first clients, and he helped them launch the McNugget. But it wasn't all a big happy meal. In 1982, with a global debt crisis brewing and countries like Mexico teetering on the brink of default, Ray confidently predicted that it was only a matter of time before the U.S. stock market cratered. When Mexico defaulted, Ray thought his prediction was coming true, and he staked his firm on it. I couldn't have been more wrong. The Fed swooped in, and the market didn't crash. It soared. I lost money for me, my clients. And I only had a small company then, but I had to let everybody in my company go. And I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad to pay for my family expenses. It was a humbling, some would say humiliating experience. But looking back, Ray calls it one of the best things that ever happened to him. Why? Because it taught him three invaluable lessons. First, overconfidence doesn't pay. Second, you can't ever know for sure where the market is headed, so you have to balance risks. Plan for a big upside, but watch out for the downsides too. And third, if you are going to make a big bet, then it had better be based on history, not just a hunch. As Ray surveyed the wreckage of Bridgewater in the wake of his miscalculation, he realized that the Fed's day-saving, economy-propping maneuvers were nearly identical to what the central bank had done to turn the corner at the low point of the Great Depression. In other words, if Ray had looked at history, he wouldn't have made such a blunder. Those three lessons, check your confidence, limit your risk, and know your history, became Ray's investment principles. To check his confidence, he built Bridgewater around a culture of radical honesty, where everyone, regardless of seniority, is encouraged, more than encouraged, required, to speak honestly at all times. 
To balance risk, he put his clients' money into highly diversified portfolios. And to study history, he assembled a research team to analyze hundreds of years of global economic data, a move that helped Ray predict and then profit from the 2008 financial crisis. These principles helped Ray grow Bridgewater into the largest hedge fund in the world. They also made him very rich. According to Forbes, he has a net worth of $20 billion. The principles also form the backbone of Ray's 2017 bestseller, Principles, Life and Work. Now, Ray's out with a new book, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail. By studying the rise and fall of great nations over the last 500 years, Ray has been able to isolate a pattern, the big cycle he calls it, universal political and economic forces that have minted new empires and felled aging ones. Today, in Ray's view, the United States is on the downward slope of the cycle. He predicts that in 10 years, there's a 30% chance the U.S. will be in a civil war. There's also a 30% chance we'll be at war with China. When I told a friend of mine that I was going to be speaking with Ray, he said, I prefer not to get my history lessons from billionaires. I get it. No matter how much money you make, you can't ever buy a crystal ball. It's also reasonable to ask whether Ray's professional interests may influence his historical conclusions. When Ray made a comment recently that seemed to excuse China's history of human rights violations, he said they behaved like a strict parent. Mitt Romney called him out for his, quote, feigned ignorance of China's horrific abuses and rationalization of complicit investments. Ray and I talk about China, and he adds some nuance to his views in the conversation that follows. We also discuss Ray's unlikely path to historical analysts. Though some think investors should stick to investing, it strikes me that trying to predict future stock market cycles requires incredible discipline, and that discipline, when applied to the study of history, may produce surprising findings. Historians, by and large, are not held accountable for their predictions. Investors are, and that accountability and the humility that accompanies it led Ray and his team to quantify 18 different metrics that have been associated with the collapse of empires in centuries past. Everything from trade, innovation, and military strength to character, civility, and determination. This is what excites me about Ray's work. He's come up with a new way to write about history, an approach that is quantitative, not narrative. If Mark Twain was right that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes, then Ray may be our poet laureate, finding rhymes that others miss. I spoke with Ray a few days before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And while we didn't address the conflict directly, I think Ray's book and the conversation you're about to hear provide critical insights for understanding the long-term consequences of this war. One of the questions a lot of people have been asking is whether what's unfolding will strengthen the U.S.-led Western empire or whether we're witnessing the first in a series of moves that could lead to a new geopolitical order where autocracies like Russia and China band together to subvert the dominance of the West. The stakes for all of us are high. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. Ray Dalio, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you for having me. First of all, Ray, I, I loved your first book, Principles. And I more broadly love the originality of your take on the world. So this is a real treat for me. Well, I'm happy to chat about it with you. 
You have a new book out. It's called Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order. Henry Kissinger called it, quote, both a serious contribution and an urgent warning. And Bill Gates called it super provocative and super important. You, Ray, have a reputation for delivering tough love. Principles was all about how radical honesty, tough love can improve our lives. Your new book, is this, is this tough love for the nation? Do you, do you think America needs a little tough love right now? Uh, I didn't think about it that way, but that's a good way of of putting it. Tough love is to get the things that you really want but are difficult, and to know the truth and to deal with that truth, even though it's tough, is what gets you where you want to go. And that's certainly the case for the United States and the world now. This is a massive project that you and your team have undertaken. You've studied 500 years of human history. You've quantified 18 different gauges of the state of the top 20 countries in the world, everything from education to debt burden to softer factors like character, civility, and determination. Um, So you spent years building, as I understand it, a kind of model of the forces of history. And your conclusion is that the United States is in stage five out of six stages of the cycle of an empire. Stage six is effectively collapse, I think, right? We're, we're in stage five. This is a blaring DEFCON warning. You've projected a 30% probability of a civil war in the next decade. You see this as a potentially catastrophic situation? Before we get to my conclusions, I'd like to get into just explain the reality and also why I did this. I didn't do it to study history. I did it to understand what's happening now and how to deal with it in the future because I'm a very practical decision maker. I run you know the world's largest hedge fund mm-hmm. for 50 years. I've been making global bets on these things and I learned in the past that the things that surprised me were things that didn't happen in my lifetime, but happened before that. I learned that first in 1971 was there was the devaluation of the dollar and the stock market went up. And I found out the same thing happened in March of 1933. And that made me study the Great Depression, which is why I was able to anticipate the global financial crisis in 2008 and profit from it. Three things that never happened in my lifetime, but are very big, were first, an enormous amount of debt creation that was monetized or is being monetized, which means the printing of money and buying that debt by central banks. That's first. The second is the size of the wealth gaps and the political gaps and the amount of internal conflict. You have to go back to 1900. As you point out, I like to measure things. You have to go back that far to find the wealth gaps and the political gaps, what they are today. And you could see it around you in the news and everything. Mm -hmm. And the third is the rising of a great power, a large, strong power to challenge the existing great power. In other words, China rising to challenge the United States by being comparably strong, comparably big, and so on. 
and challenging the existing world order. The existing world order began in 1945 when there was the last war. So in order to understand those things and how to deal with them today and tomorrow and so on, I needed to go back and follow this story. I needed to start it 500 years ago because these rises and declines of empires and these challenges, they take 250 years or 150 years. So that's what I needed to study, and that's what I think people needed to know. I didn't intend to write it as a book. I did it as a study because I needed to know it. Bridgewater, my company, needed to understand it in order to deal with today. And then I converted it into a book that I felt everybody needed to know. And as you say, Henry Kissinger, Bill Gates, Jamie Dimon, a lot of people felt that it was important for it to be read. You mentioned that you profited from the 2008 crisis, and that's, of course, the job of a hedge fund. Is there any concern among your team or among investors in the fund that you're giving away a competitive advantage by sharing your methodology? There's a long way from conveying these issues to knowing how to construct portfolios to deal with them in the best way. That's part of it. And at the same time, there's a sense of responsibility that I personally have that relates to the greater mission. You know, what do you do if you see these things? What? You sit back and you don't convey them? Everybody's saying they're very important. And I believe they're very important, and I couldn't not convey them, certainly at this level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a sense of a moral obligation. And I would also imagine that the model that that informs a lot of the uh, the book, which is, of course, full of charts and graphs and an enormous amount of data, and it's a, it's a page turner, um, must be much, much more granular in, in, in its full state, I think of I think of how the U.S. government released the, the the global positioning system, and in the early years, they restricted access to the highest resolution version only for the U.S. military. Right? <laughs> but they made they made GPS available to the to the world, um, and perhaps this is what you're doing with your model to a degree. Uh, uh, absolutely great description, because I'm showing the pictures and I'm showing. You see the pictures in the charts and and so on. It's a long way from going to that then at the granular algorithm model level to making the investment decision to construct a portfolio. You've described how you see the economy and the world to some degree as a mechanistic system. I think about the advances we've made in being able to anticipate the weather for instance, right? I mean, you know, 100 years ago, we could maybe have some sense of what kind of weather we were going to see in the next couple of days. Now we have models that make it possible to see maybe 10 days out, right? We have a pretty good sense of what weather's coming our way. But beyond 10 days, the model breaks down because it's just it's just too complicated, right? There are too many factors. What you're doing and what, what you and your team are doing is quite extraordinary, which is trying to quantify and, and build a, a sophisticated model to anticipate large changes in not only the economy, but by extension, culture and societies and the fall of nations and civil wars. You clearly see this as a useful tool. Do you think there's also some limitations to what what one can predict? Sure. First of all, everything that happens every moment of every day happens because of causes 
that happened before the reactions. So there are linkages. I mean, I believe that the only limitations are our abilities to understand and to see those things, to understand the cause-effect relationships. I mean, practically everything is almost predestined, and we just don't understand it. So there are limits to that understanding, but the capacity and ability to understand is now uh, much, much, much greater. That's what I mean mechanistic. It has a cause-effect, therefore not ideological. I'm just trying to be practical. Uh, The second thing about this is that it's um, one of those situations in which we don't know exactly, but we know a lot, even in the big cycles. Let's say there's a human life cycle. Use that as an example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm 72. I know where I am in my life cycle. Okay, it's not where a 22-year-old is in their life cycle. If you look at me and you measure what are my health measures and so on, you could know what condition I am in and you can make an approximation of my health and my longevity from that. And it's also true for looking at the life cycles of countries. You can look at their health. You can look at what they transpire if you understand those things. So America might be a a 72-year-old at this point. Well, you can see the data and you could see that that situation. Let's get back to the fundamentals. The three are, are you spending more than you are earning and financing that on debt? Okay, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's a fundamental. You cannot do that forever because one man's debts are another man's financial assets. And so it's a law that you will either pay that debt back with hard money, in other words, money that has not been depreciated in value, or they'll print a lot of the money and you'll pay it back with depreciated money, but you're going to pay that back and you can't continue to spend more than you earn individuals or societies without getting it from someplace. And that's a reality. And that produces cycles because when you borrow, you could spend more than you earn. And when you pay back, you have to spend less than you earn. So that's fundamental. And you could judge the health, the financial health, of an individual, a company, or a country by uh, its income statement and balances. The second is how you are with each other. The system has got to work great for the majority of the people. If it doesn't work great for the majority of the people, then it's, it's going to cause a problem, particularly if you have financial problems. And you can measure that. It's not just measured in the wealth gap which is, um, of course, an indicator. It's the thing that people fight the most over is wealth, but also it's measured in political gaps. And you can see what's happening around you. When you turn on the televisions and you listen to one station and you switch to the next station, you can see the ideology, you can see the conflict between the left and the right. You can see that conflict and you could see how it's going, and it can be measured. And then the third is this other rise. How strong 
is our country. So what kind of world order are we in? We're in the American world order that started in 1945, and that's when a country is dominant. The United States had 80% of the world's money. Gold was money then. It had 80% of the world's money. It had the monopoly on the biggest and best weapons. It counted for half the world economy, and so nobody wanted to fight it, and it set the rules, which is why the United Nations is in New York and why the World Bank and the IMF are in Washington, D.C., because it was the American world order. And there is a cycle in which others become more competitive and a leading empire becomes less competitive. So you can see the cycle painted in those charts and those measures that are in the book. Yep. And as a result, you can see where we are. Can we dig a little deeper into each of these big, these big three factors? So starting with the cycle of good and bad finances, you talk about the exorbitant privilege of having access to unlimited debt, right? And this is a story that we've seen play out multiple times, as you describe in the book, with the, with the Dutch guilder, the British pound, now the American dollar. This opportunity to have effectively like unlimited credit is seems to be impossible to resist, and the consequences are, are, are highly predictable. There have been some folks recently who've been talking about this idea that, well, maybe we can just borrow endlessly, right? Even came up with this fancy name for it, MMT, or Modern Monetary Theory. It's an attractive idea. Whatever we have the capacity to do, we can finance. I take it you're not a, you're not a believer in that. Well, it, no, it doesn't make sense because they're looking at it just on the basis of debt service payments. But what you have to realize is that one man's debts are another man's assets. So do you want to hold those? And right now, we're at a moment of a change that you can see taking place. The creation of a lot of debt and the printing of a lot of money has given a lot of money and buying power to a lot of people, which they like. Sure. But it should not be a surprise that prices go up a lot. You give a lot of people a lot of money and spending and, and it goes up a lot. And it should not be a surprise that inflation goes up a lot. And then when somebody's holding their money in, in savings, in cash, or in bonds, in other words, holding that debt, and you're receiving a negative uh, return relative to its buying power, you might not want to hold that. And there's a change in mentality from thinking about how rich you are in nominal dollars, in other words, not inflation-adjusted dollars, just how many you got, how many dollars yeah. you got, yeah. to starting to think of how much wealth you have in inflation-adjusted dollars and saying, oh my God, I'm losing that, which causes people to get out of cash, get out of bonds, those debtors. And that means that interest rates either go up and shut this thing off, or the government's put into position that it has to print more money. So understanding the mechanics of that is so important. It's very naive to believe MMT as it's described. I mean, I wish it was true that sure, you could just sure. print money and, yeah. and run deficits and nobody's going to care and it's all great. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But it's not true. 
Yeah, no, it would be nice. And 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 you you predicted rising inflation, and of course we just had reports of 7.5% inflation in January, the highest we've seen since the early 80s. Of course, some folks are saying, well, this is a result of supply chain bottlenecks, clearly a result of COVID-19. It should level off. I think Goldman no, Sachs yeah. is predicting that inflation will decline to 3.7% by the end of the year. Do you agree that that, that we're going to see a, a decline of inflation, or you think this is the beginning of a new a new set of problems? It's the beginning of a new set of problems, but just even think about that, okay? If you took that optimistic forecast, which doesn't include how people's behaviors are going to change, which means they're going to do things like, I don't want to hold my money in cash as much, I'm going to do something else, or uh, cost of living increases, wages are going to have to go up, people are going to argue, I need more money. Um, in order to live and so on. It's going to produce political problems. Everybody's going to demand more money and so on. And that's going to change things. And so, in my opinion, that 3.7% number is a an optimistic number. And it's a bad number on the way to change behaviors because they're not fully taking into consideration those change behaviors. You write in the book that you estimate that the next downturn is coming about four years from the publication of this book, you said. So, so late 2025, 2026. Is it, has your view on that evolved in the last few months? What, what do you think? No, and I'm, I'm not trying to be precise because uh, I can't be precise, but I can say the following. There's a cycle, many cycles. There have been recessions, stimulations, recoveries, inflations, tightening of money, downturns, recessions, and we do it again, okay? And those cycles, on average, have been about seven years, but they depend on how far you're into the cycle before the inflation. And you could look at measures like the unemployment rate, the operating rate, they, they can call that capacity utilization, or they can call that the GDP gap. In other words, how much capacity are we using? How much capacity do we have to produce? There are me measures of those. And all of those uh, show that we are near capacity and unemployment, uh, wage settlements are going up, everything is going up, and so on. And that's why we are in the part of the cycle that the Federal Reserve and other central banks are starting to put on the brakes, and they're late in doing that. And so we know what part of the cycle we are in. We are in the increasingly risky putting on the brakes part of the cycle, and there's a long way to go from zero interest rates than something to compensate us for inflation. Okay, now, so when we take that cycle, we can say this is a typical third year in a cycle. Let's say uh, this all began, the stimulation of giving everybody a lot of money and credit began in April of 2020. And so if we look at 2022, we're in the beginning of the tightening phase. So you carry into 2023, and it's going to get more difficult. The easy money has been made. And then if you go into, you carry that forward, it's going to, with time, it becomes increasingly risky. And that's what also makes the um, 2024 election period very risky, okay? Because 
you can have at that time a situation where in the financial markets, the financial markets go first, stock market goes first, credit spreads start to expand, and credit becomes more difficult. And then you see the economy follow. That's the pattern. So you start to take that, and then when you come to a period like 2024 elections, which is a whole different set of circumstances, because I think that we're at each other's throats enough. There's such an internal political conflict because of populism. We'll talk about this in a minute. When I look at the confluence, 2022 looks more like a transition period. 2023 is of greater risk, 2024, and so on. So as you get into that vicinity and whatever, it looks increasingly risky. Coming up after the break, it's not just the economy that has Ray worried. He says that if we can't find ways to heal our political divide, we could be headed for civil war. We'll be right back. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. One of the things I found fascinating about the book is if I'm reading it correctly, you're basically showing this pattern of large economic cycles manifesting themselves in certain stages in the form of internal conflict and, and polarization. It's almost inevitable, right? You have, you have these debt bubbles, you have increasing concentration of wealth, you have increasing polarization. And to some degree, it helps us understand, if this is true, why it is that we as a nation have as much internal strife and conflict as we have. It's not just that maybe your mother-in-law is unreasonable or, or people have, are going crazy, that this is something we can understand as a historical pattern. Yes, 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 right. And I'll take you through the cycle just briefly. Yeah. All of the cycles start with you have a war, a new era begins. It's a great leveling exercise. Then you have a dominant power that nobody wants to fight. And you have a period of peace and prosperity, people working together to rebuild. The gaps aren't great, new opportunities, and they hate war. Then you begin to have that building up and it's a prosperous period. And as you have that prosperity, it, particularly in a capitalist environment, you start with the Dutch. Mm -hmm. The Dutch invented capitalism, by the way. It was first stock, public stock, and stock market based on that. And what that did was it gives people with ideas, capital, money, with promises to pay back, they could get resources and they created that new kind of buying power through capitalism and so on. And that enabled a lot of productivity, the power of the intellect and the entrepreneur and the, that inventiveness together with capital, the ability to build it out was great. And what it does, though, 
is it creates uh, differences, big differences in wealth and opportunities that become self-perpetuating and unfair, and um, unfair because those who have a lot of money can give their kids educations and resources and have power that is greater than those who don't. It ceases to be an environment of really equal opportunity. So you see that this disparity begins to exist. And also, because of that experience, more people want to get into the action, which creates more borrowing of money and creating more debt creation. I know I'm like a, my dad who lived through the, you know, the Great Depression and the war afterwards, he didn't want to buy stocks. He wanted to have savings that he would be okay. And so he missed out. And then you take another generation and they come along and that really would have been stupid. They look back and they want to be in. So the creation of borrowing money and speculating increases while the wealth gaps and the opportunity gaps increase. And so when you get to a time where the those gaps are significant and the world that those people think it's unfair, what you have is populism of the left and populism of the right. And populism means like the fighter for you. In other words, which side are you on? And you want somebody who's going to fight for you. No longer do you want somebody who's going to compromise with the other side. And so you see it today in our primaries and our elections. You're not seeing moderates. Moderates are perceived as being weak. Instead, people hire the fighter for them, and then you have the wars. And so you have that kind of polarity and the loss of the middle, the loss of those who will compromise, bring people together. That's been the cycle. Now, you put that together with bad times, like could happen in the 2024 elections, and you have a fight. And so that's why it's possible that you have both sides having an attitude of they must win at all cost. Well, they may not accept losing. And if they don't accept losing, if one side doesn't accept losing and, and it comes down to power, you lose the rule of law, you lose the Constitution, and now you have a power thing going on. And that's, that's the pattern. And and that's where we get to a 30% probability of devolving into st a stage six civil war type dynamic yeah. in the next in the next 10 years. And 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 you guys to to get to that number, you you guys have 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 spent a bunch of time measuring internal strife, political conflict, really going through a a, a very thorough quantitative assessment of how much conflict is is rising right now. Yeah. But let me emphasize, it's not scientific. Uh, one of the things that is a, a real plus there is that in our history, we've only had one civil war. The United States has a long history, and there seems to be a valuing of democracy and the rule of law. If, if it wasn't for taking that into consideration, and it's difficult to know exactly how much to weigh that, yep. uh, the number would be significantly higher. But let me de describe the type of civil war. And you're, you're almost seeing signs of that now. First of all, there's people 
recognizing differences in values and circumstances and moving to other places. So uh, moving to one state from another state, and that has a self-perpetuating nature to it because, for example, high-income states with large wealth gaps tend to be more uh, redistributive type of states. And so there's a tax element, but there's also a social element and an anger element. And you could see as there's movement from such states for those reasons to other states, then they lose the tax base. And that, that, that makes the problem worse because um, they don't have the resources to have, let's say, the same police protections or the same garbage cleanup or whatever it is and makes people move more. And so you see that. And you see signs of conflict even on dealing with who will obey what rules. For example, uh, we had uh, what was called sanctuary cities when the federal government said, well, in terms of our immigration rules and so on, we require this, this, and the other thing. And certain cities or certain states will say, we're not doing it that way. We're going to do it our way. And then you have tests of power. And once you start that breakdown of rule of law and the Constitution that way, even questions like, is the Supreme Court, I'm hearing these types of questions, as it's hearing, it, going to hear things like Roe versus Wade equivalents or gun controls and so on, there's a sense that maybe that Supreme Court has been politicized and that that's not a fair system and we may not go by it. And that kind of civil war, in a sense, means really operations by power, not by us agreeing on how to follow rules and compromise for the sake of the system. When the causes that people are behind are more important to them than the system, the system is in jeopardy. And so when you say civil war then, this could be a cold war opposed to a hot war in the sense that you're not necessarily saying that we're talking about militia in the streets and people getting mowed down. This could be um, a, a collapse or breaking of our of our constitutional system or, or, or there are probably any number of other scenarios that's, we that's can right. imagine. Yeah. And in your measurements of internal conflict, and you have a, you have a chart in the, in the book that shows the last, I don't know, 150 years. The last time we had internal conflict higher than current levels was what? It was the late 1960s, right? Well, the different kinds of conflict. Back then, what we had was more strikes and protests. Martin Luther King is shot. Robert Kennedy is shot. You had Vietnam War. You had fighting in uh, Watts, uh, you know, LA and, and places like that. And you had a lot of demonstrations. And so if you take the aggregate of those things, we are at about that kind of a level, although the complexion of it is different. How much of the resentment and internal strife do you think is a result of increasing concentration of wealth or wealth inequality? You've called wealth inequality a, a national emergency. Do you think it's the big driver? It's, well, it's certainly one of the big drivers, uh, particularly if there's a sense that the system is unfair. First, you know, is it working for me? 
It's got to work for the majority. And the other problem that it creates is that historically, those societies that have been drawing upon the broadest population do best because you can't ever tell where the talent is going to come from. It can come from anywhere. You know, before there were women in the workforce and then you open the workforce, you can get a lot more talented people. And the same is true for different groups. Mm -hmm. So um, when there's a financial problem and there's the sense of it's not working for me and an injustice, then you, of course, you have conflict. That's been true through history. So you can just go back and see the patterns. You know, we, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, you know, all of those, you just see the same things. So seeing that, you can see these things. It's just not opinions. Clearly something we have to do better is, is distributing wealth in a way that's more equitable to get our country back to being more cohesive and, and try, to, try to stop the current trend lines. Let me clarify. Yeah. Yes, but you also have to distribute opportunity to be productive mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you have to simultaneously increase the size of the pie and divide it well. You can't just redistribute wealth without having productivity rise. The, collectively, our living standards are going to be a function of our productivity. So you need to really divide the opportunity pie, not just the wealth pie. I'm guessing you would support you know, some degree of taxing the rich, but you've opposed a wealth tax as a step too far. This gets personal, of course, because we've got, you know, we're in this moment in history where I think Elon Musk recently hit $270 billion of net worth. It's probably a little lower now. Forbes has reported yours at, at 15 to 20 billion. I, I have to think there are a lot of people out there who just think, you know, does any- I don't think, th I'm, I don't think I'm well understood. I'm in favor of a redistribution of a wealth. And uh, just to be clear, I'm in favor of anything that works. But there are practical uh, applications. So if you read, you can go online and on LinkedIn, and I did an examination of uh, wealth taxes and the practicality of wealth taxes is the issue, not the idea of redistributing the wealth. So let me give an example of that. In order to tax wealth, that means that illiquid assets, such as you own your house or you own property and so on, and you don't have the liquidity and you actually have to come up with a value for that thing, is very, very difficult. That's different from other types of taxes that can achieve something that's somewhat similar to that, such as inheritance taxes mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. along those lines. But in any case, I do believe that there has to be a, uh, let's take everybody, uh, there's, there's, there are basics. You have to have basic health care, you have to have basic education, and so on. You have to have that, and everybody has to have that in an environment that creates that. And so the gaps that I'm talking about are very serious, and it should be, when I have such a concentration of that, it has to be well-engineered to be effective. So I, that's where I'm coming from regarding that. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Well, because well, one wonders, I think we've got, we have, you know, Elon and maybe Bezos around the 200 billion mark. 
it's it's conceivable that the way things are going, ten years from now, we we could see a first trillionaire, right? There must be some inflection point where we say like money just simply doesn't have utility for an individual. Money doesn't have utility. That's right. Right for I, the individuals, yeah. money doesn't have utility. That's exactly right. And 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 we're way past that point. Yeah. No, you have a, you're a, you're saying something like there will be a point. No, we're past that point. Right. I, I have a friend who's made the case that we should just say there's some amount of money, let's say well, whether it's a billion or whatever it is, beyond which money has no utility. So we can just give everybody a really cool jacket. We can say you're the wealthiest person in the world and you're second wealthiest and third wealthiest. And they get a very special sort of branded hats and jackets. So they get the symbolic victory. No, but I, I think it's not it's not just that. I think you're thinking, I'm dealing with the mechanics. Yeah. I think that you think there's something about the um, ego or and maybe for some people, there's something about the ego and so on. The main thing is that one way or another, we have to invest that money well in, most importantly, education mm-hmm. and equal opportunity, okay? And then there are some people just in a civil society that may not be able for whatever their circumstances are. They may be, there may be mental issues, there may be whatever the thing, and they need to have a civil existence. So it's really the working together. If, if, I, like if I was president of the United States, first thing I would do is I'd have a bipartisan cabinet for, yeah, to, I like that. to try to bring the country together. And I'd bring together thoughtful non-extremists of those. And then I'd create a Manhattan project in which practical people from the left and practical people from the right I lock them up uh, over there or do that and t- and I'd accept anything that they came back with nobody should make one's own personal preferences dominant I think sometimes they argue about all the particulars but you need to reach an agreement that is going to have enough understanding of the engineering of an economy so that both productivity and with it the pie can grow and be well distributed. And I and I take yep. that project yep. and I take this bipartisan and I think that that would be what I would do. I think something like that needs to be done. It needs to be smart and it needs to be broadly accepted and implemented. I think this brings us to the third big factor in determining the health of the country, the cycle of external order and disorder. Um, so where are we on that metric? Well, the cycle begins after war and you start a new world order. You know, there's a fight about who's got the most power and what kind of world should live in. And the last time that happened was... Um, 1945, at the end of World War II, there were winners, and then they set the rules of the game. The U.S. won that. And uh, that's why the United Nations is in New York and the World Bank and IMF are in Washington and so on, and we had the world. And then over periods of time, uh, the relative power shifts. This always happened. That happened in World War I, and then there was the Treaty of Versailles, and the winners got together and decided the rules. And you could, you know, you can go back in history and you always see this. So 
you go through the cycle and you have the period of peace. And then also it's an equaling force. And then you also have memories. Those who went through the war uh, never want a war again. But time passes and competitions arise. And in the case where we are now, it's a total power measure. You know, in other words, there are not just military power, there's economic power, and that plays a role. China, while there was Russia, Russia was never anywhere near a comparable economic power. And so by and large, it was defeated because it was outspent on military and other things. Uh, but China's different. And so um, there are five kinds of wars. There's trade wars, technology wars, geopolitical influence wars, capital wars, and military wars. And so you're seeing that China is uh, a competitor in all of those areas. And it's now roughly comparable. We're, we're certainly, it's almost now down to your splitting hairs if you said, let's say, on the technology war, you know, who has better facial recognition and who has better AI, and then that becomes debatable. But their gaining of strength has been faster. Um, I know China very, very well. I've been going to China uh, since 1984. I admire their culture. I, admi I admire what they've accomplished. Since then, per capita income has increased by 26 times. They've increased the life expectancy by 10 years, and they lowered the poverty rate as measured by, measured by hunger uh, from 88% to less than 1%. It's a powerful force that has been su successful. And there are things to argue about in those five categories I've given, but even things like Taiwan and so on. And that's where we are. And so even the relative dominance power of the United States, not just in relationship to China, but in relationship to a number of cases. So we have a conflict with um, Russia going on, and China and Russia are allies because, again, in historical terms, what happens is there's the dominant power, and then other powers form alliances and so on, and you know the common enemy makes friends. And there's that dynamic that takes place. And, you know, that's where we are. And so there's only one solution to that in, in this, if you're fighting to be uh, the world's dominant power, and that is to be strong. It, it doesn't pay to make the other guy a bad guy or something. There's no good or bad in the world it, in that sense. You know, you, you can it won't get you anywhere saying that they're good or bad. It really is how do you become strong? And the way you have to become strong is domestically, you've got to do the right things. You've got to be financially strong. You've got to work well together. You have to have an educated population that's effective. And so that is where we are. So it's a more challenging environment than it has been. And in, in the book, you you actually take all these different metrics and add them up to an empire score between zero and one. You have the U.S. at 0.87 and China at 0.75. And as you say, it's not a perfect science. So we're really at this point neck and neck. 
I think Goldman Sachs has predicted that by 2050, the Chinese economy will be twice as large as the U.S. economy. Those trend lines seem pretty difficult to change, although I can't help but find myself feeling a little bit skeptical because I remember so well, you remember, remember 25, 30 years ago, we were all convinced that Japan was about to eclipse the U.S., was on the cover of, of, of print magazines and so on. Is it, do you think this is fundamentally different from that, that perception? I think it's fundamentally different. First of all, um, you know, Japan had a much smaller population. But let's say nothing certain, but you have to look at probabilities and you have to deal with it. And it leads you to the same, same place, which is you, first of all, damn well better be as strong as you can be. Because at the end of the day, it's a matter of power. And then like domestically fighting with each other, the parties involved have to realize that you can have a competition of systems or you could have, you know, let's say a military war. And if everybody realizes that a military war will be worse than anybody can imagine, because the technologies in its various ways that have been developed since the last war are enormous. So you must, at all costs, put uh, the avoidance of war as the number one objective and then deal with each other's existential issues well, knowing you know what each would die for. If you can bring about the fear of war internally, mm -hmm. the fear of internal war, or the fear of external war, um, and you could be strong, you know, that's the path. I, I believe, basically, um, if you worry enough, you don't have to worry. And if you don't worry, you need to worry. Uh, because if you worry enough, the fears of what you're worrying about will lead you to take actions that the thing you're worrying about won't happen and it reduces its chances of happening. But if you don't worry and you start to think there's, okay, well, uh, maybe it's not necessarily true and maybe Japan does this and maybe something else happens mm -hmm. and you don't mm -hmm. do the fundamentals yep. right, you better damn well worry. The Next Big Idea is sponsored by The Next Big Idea Club. That's right. The Next Big Idea is more than just a scintillating podcast with a debonair host. It's part of the coolest learning platform on the planet. Here's how it works. Every season, our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, and Daniel Pink, handpick dozens of the best new books. Then we partner with the authors of those books to create Book Bites. These are 12-minute audio summaries written and read by the authors themselves, and the only place you can find them is in the Next Big Idea app. And that's not all you'll find once you download it. Our app also has beautiful audio and video e-courses, ad-free versions of this podcast, bonus author conversations, and lots of other mind-expanding content. Download the Next Big Idea app today. Better yet, do it right now. Pause this recording, go to your app store, and search for Next big idea. Getting smarter has never been so easy.
when writing this book, you may have imagined a sort of typical oblivious American who's just kind of bicycling along in the sunshine and doesn't see these big cycles of history bearing down upon us. Ray, I, I was that person uh, a few weeks ago before reading your book because <laughs> I had we, we have uh, all of our family resources in U.S. big tech stocks, which is a, a, bet, a bet I made really about 20 years ago, and it's played out pretty well in the last 20 years. But I'm always looking for contrarian views, and I'm always looking to, to try to figure out why I'm wrong. And I, I find myself still, though, feeling pretty good about U.S. big tech and, and a little less confident about whether the speed of China's rise will continue at its, at its current pace for a few reasons, and I'm, I'd love to bounce those off you just to get your feedback. You can talk me out of them because I'm sure that my investment thesis is, is incorrect. And I'm not sure that anything I say is correct, but let's talk. Okay. Okay. So last week, I took an Uber ride in New York City. I love talking with the Uber drivers. I always learn something. The driver was a Chinese immigrant. He was getting his MBA on the side while driving and investing in stocks, and he was sharing with me his stock picks. And I asked him, do you believe that in 10 to 20 years, China will be the more powerful economy than the US, number one? And number two, do you think that the Chinese, the big Chinese tech companies will be the dominant tech companies in the world in 10 to 20 years? And he said, no, 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 it will be here. They will be here. And I said, well, why? Why do you think that? He said, because the rich people and the smart people in China want to be here. This caused me to think that maybe another criteria that may have some value, another gauge for the model is the talent magnet factor. You know, that the attractiveness of a given nation to talented people around the world is powerful. And when you look at what has been happening recently in China, you see there was a recent Bloomberg headline that said, Hong Kong's brain drain worsens and expats and locals flee the city. It feels to me like right now, China's maybe losing talent. And I, I think characteristics of, you know, Amsterdam in the 1600s and London, you know, for centuries and, and the U.S. today, a key part of that, I think, is attracting some of the great talent from around the world. Is that, is that a factor? Yes. The United States is the only country in the world that really can be a home for the best in the world. We have property rights. We have the capitalist system in terms of being able to provide resources. People from anywhere with great ideas, no matter how they appear, they can dye their hair purple. They can do whatever they want <laughs> to do. If they come up with the great ideas and so on, they can get capital, they can follow it through, and they could be the next Elon Musk or whatever. At the same time, if you look at what's happening in China, when I started going to China in 1984, there was nothing private. I mean, literally a restaurant was government owned and everything was government owned and people would take naps during the middle of the day and so on. There's a vibrancy and an education of their children, and there's a capital markets, the second largest capital markets in the world. There's entrepreneurship, and they're creating billionaires, and they're creating other ideas, and they're at the same time also creating, like there's a new program, I, I, I think it's called uh, The Little Giants, in which there's venture capital, and they're finding out what the best new ideas are. And uh, there's a big difference in some cases. That, uh, like, for example, still, if you take the best universities and these best places, the United States has the best rarefied environments that are 
terrific in terms of, you know, a limited number of universities and the environments around those universities and so on in the world. And yet, um, if you take a look at in China, how many engineers are they turning out? Computer engineers, about eight times as many. And so if you look at the developments of technologies, and and, um, when I first went to China, I would give $10 calculators to people who were high government officials around big companies, and they thought they were miracle devices. Nowadays, they're competing with quantum computing. There's certainly a conflict of, you know, ideologies. Each side has risks. And the biggest risk of democracy is disorder. It can become anarchy because people are fighting each other. It has a risk, and we're experiencing that. The biggest problem of autocracy is it can stifle that creativity. I don't honestly know exactly how this is going to turn out or anything along those lines. My general view is I'm, I'm big on diversification. I'm in, mm-hmm. you know, impressed in both. And, um, you know, so that's, that's how it looks to me. So if yeah. you were to bet on technology, I think you'd be making a serious mistake to think that it's a no-brainer that American technology will win out. And how about, I'm fundamentally a believer in your argument and principles for the importance of a culture of radical honesty. And I wonder how, you know, um, you were talking about, you know, Chinese billionaires. And of course, recently we had, you know, Jack Ma, the CEO of Alibaba, go missing for three months in, in November 2020 after he made a controversial speech criticizing the Chinese financial system. You know, we've got obviously the, the Uyghur population interned in forced labor. We've got, you know, 50,000 police officers monitoring and censoring the internet. Trading crypto is illegal. It's not a culture of radical honesty. And it feels to me like creativity and the power of humans plus machines, which is something you've talked about, like the power of, 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 of computational power and computing power combined with, you know, smart and creative humans is extraordinary. And it feels to me like that's going to reward cultures of creativity, and creativity thrives in free environments. Do you, does that resonate? It does. I mean, like I live in the American dream, and and I love it. But I think you're you probably haven't spent much time in China. It's true. Never. And been. you yeah. probably don't see what's going on in the entrepreneurial world. And then there's the issue of, you know, where does the government draw the line in terms of those things and whether you would draw it at that line? I think you'd be shocked in many ways of how impressed about some things. Let me give you an example. Kids playing video games. The government sets the rules for what kind of get video games that they can have and how many hours a day uh, or a week uh, they can do that. In the United States, we would say it's not the role of the government to do that. It's the role of the parents to do that and so on. And then we would examine what's going on in video games. And uh, there's a lot of really scary stuff going on there. And so then you look at the other one and you say, so, um, okay, is that a good thing or bad thing? And I don't know, you know, like what works, works. And, and, and so it almost becomes, you can't be so 
sure about those things. You just have to realize there's pros and cons. And so when I come down to it, absolutely. But if you have personal responsibility and good behavior with freedom, you have a magical combination. If you don't have that, if you don't have personal responsibility and good behavior with freedom, you have chaos. So it's not so simple. Well, I'm betting on um, time in video games, building new digital things of value, being a, a positive. I have to bet on this, Ray, given how many hours my kids spend in video games. <laughs> I, hope they're, I hope they're learning to be future builders in there. We'll, we'll find out. Well, this gets us to the topic of what we can do in, in, in response to these, these learnings about, I mean, as you suggested in the book, these big cycles are inevitable. Empires tend to get 100 to 150 years. Hopefully, we can, we can get another 100 years out of ours, maybe. But as individuals and, and collectively, there's actions that we can take based upon the critical reminders and, and, and learnings in your book about the inevitability of these big cycles, right? So starting with like the personal front, what do we do individually? I mean, obviously, we need to be prudent with our family finances. Maybe I need to think about some diversification. What, what, what do you recommend for people individually? First of all, planning on, uh, let's say, the, your worst case scenario, making it okay. So uh, calculating how much uh, wealth you have and your spending of what you need and how many months or years you can go on to be fine in the event that that didn't happen. So you want to have buying power. You want to take that number and after you calculate taking care of your family and so on, how many years can you do that? And you want to cut that number to be conservative. You want to cut that number in half because it could be lost to inflation or taxes or other things. And you know, just from the recent market action in terms of, let's say, tech stocks or something, you can understand how these things happen and, and it happens in various ways. And so you want to uh, start there. And then in keeping your portfolio happen, uh, well, you want to almost think of two portfolios. You know, what is the insurance type of portfolio? that you would have under that kind of, let's say, the worst case scenario. Number three on this is that you want to understand that if you diversify well, you can reduce your risks without reducing your returns. All you have to do is find comparably good things that move differently, and you will accomplish that. And so you want diversification, probably, of countries, currencies, and asset classes, and so on. You have to. So number three is diversify well. And I would say number four is stay out of cash. Cash is trash. If there's too much debt. It'll have a tax on you that you might not pay attention to because you might think that I'm safe by holding a certain amount of cash, but it will be taxed by the inflation rate. 
and or the tax rate. But so let's say you lost 7% last year, you might lose another 5% in the next year. And the cumulative effect, that that loss, that is going to be important. So I would say stay out of cash and cash type investments, diversify well, and make sure that you have uh, enough money Um, including for whatever that worst case scenario is. And once you've got that taken care of, then you can go on and chase out whatever the best is and you go make your bets and and so on. But make sure you've got that. And so for the all-weather fund, we don't want to be in cash. I think I've heard you say that bonds are not particularly attractive right now. So some some equity positions, you'd be a buyer of foreign currencies – well, a little, all, bit of, all, a little bit of crypto, a little bit of real estate. Wait, what would that look like? Well, first of all, some inflation index bonds rather than regular bonds. Okay. Some gold, some mm-hmm. assets that are in countries that have the three good characteristics I mentioned. And those three good characteristics are where they're earning more than they're spending where there's not going to be as much internal conflicts and there's not going to be an external war. Be flexible, be diversified. You know, those are the main things. Given the risk of civil war and conflict, it seems like as a, as a culture, as a community, it's time to focus on what we have in common. Would, would you agree with that? I mean, how yeah, how well, could we change our focus? What's, what's essential is um, look at wars, look, read these stories, understand what that means, understand how fighting among ourselves, either internally or externally, is destructive and harmful and hellacious, and then put that the working together and finding ways of getting around uh, the existential issues, the most important issues, must be of paramount importance. And so it's the same thing. You know, if you worry, you'll deal with the worrying and you won't have to worry. But if you don't worry, uh, then um, you have to worry. Not fighting and doing it well is going to be a lot better. Thank you, Ray, for taking time out of your your hedge funding and grandparenting and hanging out with Henry Kissinger and Bill Gates uh, to be with us today. I, I, I so enjoyed the conversation. Well, thank you for our interesting conversation and also uh, helping me to help pass along what I hope is of value to your listeners. Thank you. Ray Dalio's new book is Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order. It's a fascinating read, just like his last book, Principles. You can buy them both wherever books are sold. Ray has been posting his thoughts about the ongoing situation in Ukraine on LinkedIn. If you want to learn more, follow him there. The clips you heard in the intro to this episode are from the Stanford Graduate School of Business and Reed Hoffman's excellent podcast, Masters of Scale. Special thanks to Molly Nagel, who helped make this interview happen. Want to support the show? Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and leave us a five-star rating and a review if you think we've earned it. It really helps other people discover the show. Another way to support us is by becoming a member of the Next Big Idea Club. For the past year, we've been hard at work building a best-in-class app that features audio summaries of brilliant new books read by the authors themselves, beautiful audio and video masterclasses, conversations with our extraordinary curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Kane, Adam Grant, and Daniel Pink, and ad-free versions of this podcast. 
We're offering podcast listeners 20% off our Express membership today. Visit nextbigideaclub.com and use the promo code PODCAST20 at checkout. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Thank you, Caleb. Happy to help. Our executive producer is Michael Kovnat. Sound designed by Mike Toda. The team at LinkedIn gets a perfect score on our empire scale. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.